right, this is a real treat because I talk with this guy off and on via text pretty regularly, but I haven't talked to you on video or in this sort of format since about the 2009 season, your final NFL season, your final of two seasons with the Texans, one of my favorite players ever to cover, safety, Nick Ferguson. Nick, how you been, man? I'm good, man. Thank you uh, for, for having me, man. I, I have to tell you this. I miss that uh, Houston Texans uh, family down there. So uh, thanks for having me on. For sure, man. You know, you had 10 NFL seasons. You played 10 NFL seasons. Started out with the Jets, spent a good chunk of your time with the Broncos, and then you moved to Houston in 08 and 09. And as I'm looking over your, your sort of your resume and all those teams, 10 NFL seasons, only one of them was below 500. You went seven and nine with the Bronx in 07. But otherwise, you're above 500 and you're a winner and you're you're in the playoffs most every year. What was that like? Do you, do you realize or do you think you were pretty blessed in that regard to, to have been around on those good teams all that time? Absolutely. It's not just being around those good teams. That's good teammates, fan bases, uh, and, and coaches. And I tell uh, all the kids when I go out to talk to them, I say, look at my story. A guy that came out of the inner city of Miami, uh, undrafted guy, was able to carve out a pretty decent uh, decade in the NFL. And I've had a chance to play with some uh, Hall of Fame players. I've had a chance to play against some Hall of Fame players. So I definitely consider myself to be blessed to have actually had that opportunity. And I have to tell you, man, it, it was one uh, roller coaster after another, but that is the <laughs> NFL. And any player would tell you that. I mean, it, it's, it's a blessing to have an opportunity to play a childhood game, a game that you played in Pop Warner, a game that you had an opportunity to play in high school, but to just be on that field and, and just kind of to look around every stadium that I had an opportunity to play in, it, it's just been extraordinary. And sometimes I have to pitch myself because it doesn't seem real. And I want to get more into your football career later, but what are you doing now? First of all, you've got an awesome background. I mean, if uh, if Twitter <laughs> sees the Room Raider, I mean, you're getting a 10 out of 10, I think. You got that Houston Texans uh, helmet displayed prominently. Something tells me, though, I'm guessing you have like a Jets and you have a Broncos helmet, maybe even a Georgia Tech helmet that you can kind of swap out depending on the situation. I like the Texans lid, too, but what are you up to these days, my friend? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I have the Texans helmet here. I have uh, Peyton Manning signed football here as well. <laughs> Obviously, you can see the Georgia Tech helmet in the frame. Also, uh, my coach, Mike Shanahan, his book is here as well. Yeah. And, of course, I, I, I couldn't, you know, do this without it. I have uh, a ball, a game ball. It was the final battle of the base between San Francisco and the, the then Oakland Raiders during my time coaching for yeah. the 49ers, man. So I, I've done a lot of things since leaving uh, the, the Texans. I mean, obviously I'm in media right now. And I have to tell you this, Drew, it was one of the things I never thought that I, I would actually do, especially coming from my days with the New York Jets, where that media, you know, they were really brutal. And I was like, man, I don't want any part of this industry. But years later, I would find myself walking into it because it was the closest thing that I could get to actually, you know, being part of the game. I can't play anymore, yeah. but uh, talking about the game, breaking it down, the X's and O's, taking people behind the curtain, that was uh, something that uh, definitely key and has helped me out. But the biggest thing was uh, coaching. I mean, I, I've done a couple of coaching internships. I did one very briefly with the Texans, 
I uh, did one with Gary Kubiak here uh, when he was with the Broncos, when they went to the Super Bowl, had an opportunity to do another with the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. And I was able to parlay that into a full-time position, man. So I, I've had a chance to do a lot, but it, it's all been centered around the great game of football. And you're in Denver now. And you're yeah. on you're on the radio at nights with uh, a guy we like bad down here, Cecil Lamy. I mean, tell us what that's yeah. like. I mean, you, you got a talk show. You're having a that's not that's no easy task going for the, the amount of time you go on a regular basis. No, it's not. And, and there are a lot of players that uh, try to make that segue from the field into broadcasting. And it's not as easy as one may think it is. It's, it's similar to you know deciding, hey, listen, I played this game. I can coach, but not every player can coach and not yeah. every player can work well in front of a camera and can work well on radio. So for me, I've had an opportunity to be around some great people to give me some great advice. Jerry Madelon, who used to be the vice president of talent at ESPN. He was one of my mentors. The great James Brown is definitely wow. another guy I've met, you know, through, you know, my, my trials and my process into broadcasting. And, and I get a chance to lean on those individuals to get wisdom about this great business that we're in. And for me, it, it's been great. Yes, I'm on 104.3 The Fan here in Denver, the Nick and Cecil show. We're on from 7 to 10. And it, 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 it has been great because I've had to use a lot of the skills, Drew, that I learned as a player in, yeah. in broadcasting. And I'm not just talking about the X's and O's. It's like the hustle and bustle, the grind, trying to wear my producer's hat to get people on the show, but, but I've loved every moment of it. Hey, I, you touched on something I didn't know about. So you got the connection with James Brown, obviously not the godfather of soul, the broadcaster. Did right. that come when you guys, when you were in New York, did that, is that how that struck up or how, how did that happen? Well, that happened because I participated in the, the broadcast bootcamp. Oh, okay. And okay. Usually, yeah. Usually they have two sessions. One was just kind of the introductory session. And then, you know, if you do it well there, there bring you back for maybe a more advanced session. So in both of those sessions, I've had a chance to uh, meet him, had a chance to work with him on camera. The great Kurt Manifee is another guy yeah. who I've had to uh, the opportunity to work with. So it, it, it's still being in this football type of environment. It's about being able to work with others, being able to find yourself in uncomfortable situations, because I'll tell you this. I mean, I was years and years ago when I uh, was finishing up my career in Houston. I was doing uh, a live video feed uh, with Josina Anderson, who was at ESPN and she worked here for Fox 31. And I had an earpiece in. Now I could not see her, right? She could see me, but then I right. had all kind of reverb in my ear, right? So every word I said, I could hear myself. It's and funny, I had to, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> I had to learn how to block that out in that moment. No, yeah. no training prepared me for that. But once again, it's just like the game of football. You get beat on a touchdown. How do you? How can you adjust and how quickly can you do it? So it's once again, it's been great. And any guy who is a current Texans who is thinking about getting into broadcasting, first step is they have to know you. I know you're going to give them the ins and outs of it. But uh, it's it's a great industry, but it but it is it is tough. It is tough. Yeah, it's not rocket science, but it's not easy either. Either you're you're right. right. You started this whole thing off by saying you know you were kind of surprised you got into it. It's not a surprise to me, just based on that. I you know you you and I only overlapped a year, but you always had kind of an intellectual curiosity that was sort of unique in the locker room. 
you know, like you, we did this little video bit that first year I was here and it was basically like, what's in your locker. And we basically, like, <laughs> it's interesting. And with most of the guys, I think we did like six or seven of them. And if we did seven, six of them, it was like pulling teeth. And then we got to yeah. you and it was like, Oh, here's my hand sanitizer. You're just like, you're like talking yeah. about everything. You had a bunch of this peanut butter, blah, 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 blah. you know, like you went through all the stuff that was, you had a, you a had a unique locker and B you were cool talking about it. And so it doesn't surprise me that you, you wound up getting into this. And also the second part of the non-surprise for me was before I got to fly in here before a game. And you might've done this before a lot of games, but I only saw it before one, before a Texans game one time in your uniform, so you're in your pants and your cleats and everything. And then you had like a, a sweatshirt top. So it wasn't like pregame. It was, I guess, getting loose. You had all that on. And then a Darth Vader Star Wars face mask. And you're just signing autographs, screwing around. I was like, I've never seen that before. And I haven't seen it since. So I was like, <laughs> Nick Ferguson, he's a little different, this guy. So it doesn't surprise me that you can get into uh, to, to sports radio and, and doing what you're doing. But let's go back. Let's rewind all the way back. You're a Miami guy. You're one of 11 children, if I'm correct. You're correct. Yes. So you grew up in Miami. You're one of 11 children. Where are you in the pecking order of those 11? And what was that like having brothers and sisters, so many of them? Because I have, my wife and I, we have five. And I think my, my I feel like I'm drinking from a water hose some days. But what was that like <laughs> for you growing up? Well, first of all, I am smack dab in the middle. Wow. And okay. it's, yes, yes. So, so the way that it works, usually people say the middle child no doesn't really get a lot of attention because you got the older child and the younger child. I, I decided to draw attention to myself, you know, via academics and athletics, right? And growing up with 11 kids, as you can imagine, like you said, drinking from a fire hose, that's exactly what it's like because the majority of my siblings are, you know, women and, you know, trying to get in the bathroom and all of the, it, it, was just, it was just a headache. And then, you know, in high school, when you start dating, you start talking to girls on the phone, you couldn't really get the phone because they are killing all the phone time. Yeah. Right? And we didn't so, have cell phones. We didn't have cell phone. Cause I'm just a little bit older, a little bit younger than yeah. you, but like we didn't have cell phones back then. No, we, we didn't. So you had to constantly watch the clock. And yeah. if mom said they had 15 minutes, it had to be 15, not 1501, <laughs> 1502, but 15 just right on a dot. So it, it was kind of crazy, but it was always fun energy in our household. But here's here's another thing that was crazy because when I was in high school, I wasn't a really big guy. Even as a player, I wasn't a really big guy. Uh -huh. And you know, when, when dinner was served, you had to make sure, Drew, that you were there when it was served. Because if oh, you're yeah. not there on time, you're gonna miss out. Yeah. So so it, it, it was one of those uh types of things. Scarcity of food made you be a prop person as far as time was concerned. How did the, well, how did that jive with practices? Because I'm guessing you had you missed some of those dinners because practice unless you guys were eating later as a family. I mean, what how'd that work? Well, you just you get you got to pick up the scraps where you can get them pretty yeah, much. Yeah. And it got to a point where my mom kind of realized it and, and knew that hey, I need to eat and I need my nutrition, especially after practice. So she would put like food aside for me. Now the only problem was when my mom would like bake you know pies and cakes that's where I would, I would lose out because, you know, most likely it was gone by the time I got home. Oh man. Well, your mother's a saint. Uh, I don't know her. Don't know much about her, but anyone that's got 11 children, she's a saint. Now 
I know you're a little bit older than him, but did you ever cross paths with Dre back in the day? Andre Johnson, uh, I know you're, you're just a few years ahead of him, but you know, what was that? Did, did you, you have any, any shared commonalities there? Well, we, we do. Uh, Dre went to Miami High. Uh, it's a high school in Miami. My younger brother attended that, that school. Uh, my cousin, Ben Hanks, who went on to play his college ball at the University of Florida, he also went to that school. And I remember hearing about this guy, you know, Andre Johnson, and I wanted to see it for myself. And they were playing in uh, the then Orange Bowl. And I can't remember which high school that they were playing against. And I was like, man, I was amazed at his size, his speed, as opposed to the game. And he was really quiet. Because usually when you think about guys coming out of Miami playing that well, and he's highly coveted by so many schools, he's going to be this guy that exudes not just confidence, but he's going to talk a lot, right? But Dre didn't really talk a lot. He, He allowed his game on the field to speak volumes for him. And he did the same thing when he got to the pros. Now, unless we were playing against the Tennessee Titans, things got kind of got a little different. You know, but other other than those types of games, uh, Corner Finnegan, uh, yeah. you know, Dre was kind of a, a lax type of guy, but I watched him in high school and I was just amazed at uh, how good, you know, he was. And it was crazy because years later, I would find myself playing on the same team with him. So it, it, it was great for me and just kind of being around a guy like that who's kind of from that same area because, you know, knowing a lot of kids that grow up, in the Miami area, I know they're dealing with similar circumstances that we were dealing with. You know, maybe the fathers may not be in the household. You know, mom's just trying to struggle to make ends meet. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening in the streets and in the environment, people pulling and tugging at you in different ways. And a lot of guys don't make it. So to see that I was one of those guys that made it and Dre was one of those guys that made it, it was just kind of fantastic, especially for our area. You talked about how he's not a typical Miami guy. He wasn't very loud. Were you a typical Miami guy? Were you loud when you were a player? Oh, no, I was a total opposite. You know, most most people really didn't know that I was from Miami unless I told them. Like, you know, when I played for the Denver Broncos, DJ Williams, who went to the University of Miami, and Cecil Sapp, who was from, you know, the Miami area, he he, he went to play this college ball at CSU. Right. They didn't know that I was from Miami. They were like, well, you don't look like it. You don't talk like it. And I was like, well, I got the same thing when I was in high school. No one, no one really knew I was from Miami. And I, and I lived like 15 blocks from my high school because I, I guess I didn't have that type of personality. But now because I'm from Miami, of course, I had orange and green in my wardrobe because the University of Miami. But other than that, uh, no one really knew. And, and Drew, I wasn't one of those trash talking guys. Yeah. Because my whole my whole idea is that if you start it, I'm going to finish it and I'm going to allow my helmet and shoulder pads to just kind of speak for me. So that I was that type of guy. And so was Drake. OK, so you go on to Georgia Tech. Tell me about why you chose that place, why uh, what you did there, what it was like. I mean, you're obviously a proud uh, yellow jacket. You got the the, uh, the the helmet there in the background. What was that all like, you know, going to choosing your college and going there? Well, it was it was a unique circumstance, Drew, because uh, Georgia Tech kind of like uh, was kind of a segue in the process for me because I went to Morris Brown College in Atlanta. Right. And I, I quickly outgrew that school. And I said, well, 
I want to challenge myself. If I want to see if I have the goods to play on the next level, I need to play at a power five school. So I did something that players normally don't do. I transferred from a division two to a division one. And, you know, what the NCAA said to me, well, Nick, you know, we love your enthusiasm and we love your perseverance, but since you're going to transfer up a division, we're going to have you sit out. So when I transferred to Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech, I had to sit out and forfeit an entire season as a penalty for transferring up a division. And when I went to Georgia Tech, believe it or not, I, I didn't have a scholarship. I, I walked on. Wow. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to earn the respect of these players and these coaches. And I eventually did. And it was if it wasn't for Georgia Leary, who seen me covering one day and was like, hey, who is this guy? I never get my scholarship. So, you know, tip of the cap to him for looking at me in that way and giving a walk-on an opportunity because in college football, typically they don't give walk-ons scholarship. Not every school does that. It all depends on what you're doing as a player and, you know, how the head coach feels. But, uh, you know, Georgia Tech was one of those schools I wanted to get into. I know I knew that when people start looking at you as far as an NFL prospect, they look at the production on the field, but they also look at where you went to school. And because I went to Georgia Tech, I mean, it, I'm, as far as the academics were concerned, Great it was school, a tough yeah. school. Yeah. yeah, it was a tough school. So when they saw the Georgia Tech name attached to Nick Ferguson, they go, okay, well, he may be lacking this, but here's the one thing we do know. Yeah, we know he's smart. smart. Yeah, That's right. So I can pick up the system. So you know, transferring to Georgia Tech, I mean, that was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. So, okay, you just said O'Leary and Georgia Tech. That means you you kind of overlapped with, like, Bill O'Brien to a degree and George Godsey, right? Yeah, George Godsey, I was – I left before Godsey uh, okay, came to Georgia so, Tech. Gotcha. But I would, I, I would come back. So I, I would see George Godsey, and at the time, while I was there, Doug Marone, who was once yeah. – the head coach for the Jags, he was the offensive line coach. And Bill O'Brien, believe it or not, was a graduate assistant. Wow. So so I got a chance to be around, you know, both of those guys. And, and it was actually, you know, Doug Marone who introduced me to my agent, Jack Real, who represented me for 10 years. You get out of Georgia Tech. And then from there, I mean, your whole, your whole journey is fascinating. I mean, every I think every NFL player's journey is pretty Interesting. I think yours is a little bit more fascinating, though, because you did NFL Europe time. And yes, I mean, I think that's that's that that had to have been just a total trip for a guy from Miami, went to school in Atlanta. I mean, that that's a whole new ball of wax. Right. I mean, what, what was how did that all come to be? Well, once again, it's it, with the NFL, you have to continue to put film out there. Yeah. The more film is out there, the more teams have an opportunity to evaluate. It's almost like uh, that, that is your resume, right? Because if we were talking about this as being a corporate job and there's a gap in your resume that's a year or six months, companies want to know, well, why didn't you work for a year or six months? And that can affect your employment with that, with that organization. The NFL is the same. And for me, going to NFL Europe, that came by way of the CFL first. Right. Because the CFL was one of those places that provided me with an opportunity to gain more film. And then when I heard about NFL Europe, it's like, OK, I'm back in the States, even though I'm overseas. 
but I'm playing against NFL caliber talent. So yeah. that may be my way to get back in. And it definitely, it definitely was. I should have won two World Bowls while I was there. And, you know, when I did win one, Danny Warfel was, uh, was my quarterback. Son of a gun. I, do you kind of feel sorry for players these days that there is no NFL Europe or, or are you just kind of like whatever? Because I, I think that's a – it seems like it's a lost opportunity uh, in some sense. No, it is. I, I definitely feel sorry for, for those guys because, you know, NFL Europe provided me an opportunity to showcase my talent and also prove to teams that I had what it, what, what it took for, to, for me to join an NFL team. Whatever they felt that I was lacking when I first came out of college, I wanted to show each year there was an improvement. And if you're a guy that's in the NFL right now, even playing for the Texans, that's what the coaches and organization are looking for. They're not looking for you to stay the same person you were the year before. Are you getting better at your craft? If you were having issues with your footwork, has that footwork improved? If it was, if it was open field tackling for a linebacker or a safety, have you improved with your open field tackling? Because Herman Edwards used to say this all the time. Either you're getting better or you're getting worse. And that's what you have to do as a player. So playing in NFL Europe, it, it afforded me an opportunity to really kind of come into my own, be confident. So when I'm out there on the field, preseason or regular season, I can make the proper checks. The coaches have confidence in me because if a coach, and I can tell you this, you know, you know, being a coach in the NFL, if I can't trust you, I can't put you out there on the field. I don't care how fast you are, how great you look from a physical standpoint. I need to trust you. So yeah. NFL Europe gave me that opportunity, and there's a lot of guys. I mean, we're going to see a lot of – you're going to see a lot of guys in camp with the Texans who are not going to make the team because they're going to be right on the bubble. And you just say, you know what? If there was another league like the NFL Europe that allowed these guys to get that time, man, this kid can play in this league for a decade. So for me, I, I was blessed. I was fortunate because I had that opportunity. But here's, here's where I would like for things to have been a little different. The guys that are playing today, they're, they, they're making more money than I made. So that's the, <laughs> that's the only thing I would love to change. Right. What about <laughs> football aside when you were in Europe? What were some, some of the most eye-opening experiences you had? Well, the biggest thing was, once again, uh, being as though I was in uh, Ryan, or uh, played for the Ryan Fire and Dusseldorf Journeyman. Okay. It was the, the Autobahn. That was the first thing that shocked me because I was just like, I mean, are, are these cars actually allowed to go this fast? And there was a there was a Porsche that passed our bus. And at first, all you could do is hear it coming from miles away. And when it passed the bus, all you could do is hear it because you never saw it. Right? It, was just, it was just moving so fast. So that was one of the things that was kind of first shocking. And then it was the food. The, the food was a little different. Like yeah. for me, I like my eggs to be warm. Over in Europe, everything is cold, right? Right. Even oatmeal was kind of cold. So it was kind of trying to adjust to that. But the best thing about it was the fans. I mean, it's so amazing. NFL fans are great. Yeah. College fans are even better. But fans in the UK, I mean, because they're so used to, you know, soccer or, or football, as they would call it. I mean, they're up and as far as the pregame is concerned, they're there. They're, they're early. They're painting their face. They're cheering. And the one thing I loved about playing over there was a tradition they had from soccer. When the match is over, the players go around the arena and you high five and you communicate with the fans. So 
that that was uh, definitely uh, awesome. And just that kind of impact of the fans forced me to do something. Well, it didn't force me to, but I decided to do it on my own as a way to engage with the fans. I started painting my face. And really? that, yes, and that took on a thing of its own because huh. fans started painting their faces as well. So it, it, it was great. I, I loved I loved uh, every moment of it, and uh, it was fantastic. Am I imagining this, or did you paint it like Darth Maul? Is that am I? You're right. I yeah, did. Okay. Uh, I did Darth Maul. I did Spider Man. I did the <laughs> skeleton face. I mean, yeah, I did some of some of everything because that was my way of being able to show uh, my personality to the fan base. So I loved every moment of it. Right. And then NFL time, your, your career is very, it's very orderly. Started in 2000, finished 2009. So it was that very, that first decade of the century, Jets, Broncos, Texans, and listen to the coaches, Al Groh, one year, Herm Edwards, a few years, Shanahan in Denver, and then Kubiak. Four pretty good minds right there, coaching wise. You, what would you think playing for those? I mean, I'm sure you learned a little bit from each of them and, you know, you put that to use when you yourself were an assistant, right? Well, well, yeah. Also, you know, you had Todd Bowles, who was my yeah, yeah. Not to mention the assistants, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, you know, Bill Parcells, Wade Phillips. So I, I've been around some brilliant minds in football, and for me, living here in Denver, I have the luxury of living in the city where Mike Shanahan actually lives. So I mean, I could pick up the phone and call Mike. And say, hey, listen, I just saw this on television. The office is running this. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts? And how would you stop this? So I have the ability to still stay in contact with people like that and just kind of talk to them. And you know, Mike is just one of those individuals that I talk to. But this is the great part of you know being an NFL alumni. There are so many people that I can talk to, like Anelius Williams, a guy that I looked up to wow, when I was yeah. coming up. And uh, Steve Atwater. I mean, mm-hmm. he's one of those guys, I have to tell you, Drew, that uh, I idolized coming up as a, sure. as a kid. And I want to had my game after him. And sometimes when I'm around him, you know, I, I, I fanboy just a little, you know, I, I fanboy just a little. And, and Steve is uh, that type of guy where he allows me to do it. But being around all those people, it just helps fortify and build my football IQ. Yeah, Atwater, that guy's a legend. Gary Kubiak, who, you know, both have our experiences around him. I remember he told that – he's told that story about uh, Atwater just clocking Christian Okoye. And, yeah. I mean, it, it, the way he tells it is it's amazing, that that monster set. And congrats to Atwater on finally getting to the Hall of Fame. Um, okay, 2005, you were on a really good Denver team. You were a big part of it, five picks, but none bigger – than the one that you forced for your buddy. Let's rehear. We you got to you got to tell us your your favorite play of all time again. We love hearing the story. Well, everyone loves hearing it. The only person who doesn't like hearing it is Champ Bailey. Why? Because because, because he didn't finish the play. He didn't score. <laughs> and everyone always asks the question. They don't ask the question, Drew, as to why Champ didn't score. They always ask, well, why did not block for him? And I'm like, wait a minute. Did you not see how that play started? Right. I forced Brady to move to his right side. And to, to, to take you behind the curtain a little on that play, you know, all season long, you know, our defensive coordinator, Larry Correa, would bring John Lynch and I down in the box. 
but he would never blitz me. He would always blitz John. So the, the guard and the tackle, they pointed at me, and they, they're having this conversation before the ball is snapped. And they're saying, oh, don't count 25. He's not coming. So I'm thinking, like, are they just going to allow me to run past them? And then when the ball was snapped, it parted like the Red Sea because they didn't block me. They didn't anticipate that I was going to come. But were you, supposed to, did, come or were, were you supposed to come or were you supposed to come? Yes. Okay, so they, I, I was okay. supposed to come. Gotcha. Right. But because in the scouting report, they didn't, I they, never. Yeah. That's right. So it shocked Tom, too, because he didn't think that anyone was going to come that quickly wow. because we, we were counting in a zero blitz. Right. Meaning that our corners were man to man, eight yards off the ball. If you yep. got beat inside, you got beat. So it surprised Tom and it forced him to throw before he was able to set up. Champ stepped into Troy in front of Troy Brown. He racing off the left side of the sideline. I'm taking off because I'm in the backfield. It's me, John, and Gerard Warren. And I'm looking around for people to block. block. I mean, Kevin Falk, he tries to make an attempt on a tackle. He falls away. Then Tom just stopped himself. So the only guy that was still in pursuit that I could see was Troy Brown. Right. Now, if you go back and watch the video, I'm just doing with a, a quick head movement left, right. Now, who, who, I don't know who looks all the way to their right because I never did that because I never expected Ben Watson to come from where he came from. And then I slowed up around the three-yard line and so did Champ. And then I just saw this flash of white jersey come right in front of me. And I was like, who was that? And I just see Champ <laughs> Bailey flying uh, out of bounds. And here's something that's interesting. If you notice what I did after that play, was something that you're not supposed to do as a player. You're not supposed to touch their officials. So after the ball goes out and they're trying to figure out where the ball went out, I immediately went up to the ref, put my hands on his shoulder, and I told him, no, the ball went out right here, so you should place it on the one. So that was me using a Jedi mind trick on that particular official. Did you get fined? No, I didn't get fired. Nice, Frua. These are yes. not the droids you're looking for. That's good stuff. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, what was it like? What was it like? What you got to Houston? 08, Texans go 500, and then you're on the team in 09, first you know team that goes above 500. What What was it like when you were here? Hot, really <laughs> hot. Man, the wet the weather was so different from uh, from Denver, and it just felt yeah. as though. The practices, my, my skin felt as though it was going to boil off. And I was like, man, did I make the right decision? Coming here is so hot. And just being around, you know, Gary Kubiak and knowing him from our time with the Denver Broncos, I was just like, I love what he's trying to build here. He's trying to take what he learned under Mike Shanahan and bring it to Houston, you know, a new organization. And it was, it was great, man, that the people of Houston was always great to me. The people inside the organization, yourself, and other people, some are still there, some are not. But it just kind of felt like a family atmosphere. And that was something that I was similar, that, that I was familiar with, you know, being in the Broncos organization. So Coach Kubiak was able to bring it back. But it was always fun. It was always competitive. And believe it or not, some people may know that, may not know this, but uh, Coach Kubiak was a prankster, believe it or not. Really? You How know? so? Yes. Well, like in practice sometimes – they have this, the, 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 the scout team has to go out and just kind of run, you know, scout plays for the defense. Sure. And then sometimes it's it, vice versa. So we're going one-on-ones and, you know, 
I think it was Andre Johnson was looking to catch a deep post pattern, right? And he actually caught the post pattern. I was just a half a second from breaking it up. And Coach Kubiak, who typically stands in the end zone so he can way see back. Plays, He's way back. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So uh, I would like to tell you exactly what he said, but I can't, <laughs> right? <laughs> but he was just like, man, he burnt your tail again, right? And, you know, all we could do is laugh at it. But, but once again, it built that competitive spirit that we had, you know, a, as a teammate. But uh, he, he was really uh, a prankster, man. But most people don't really think of it because of his laid back attitude. But, yeah, he, he wouldn't be afraid to get in there and mix it up with you as a player. Yeah, he was he you're right. He did have an underrated sense of humor and he could he could pop the pop the or twist the needle a little bit sometime. He was funny. Yeah. And also, to be fair. You got burnt by Dre. You were not the first, and you were not the last. You were you were you were one of many that that happened. I know you know yeah. that too, but just so everyone else remembers that. Who you yeah. keep in touch with any of your uh, Texans teammates from those days? You, you talk to anybody from time to time? Well, well, some of the guys uh, I, I do. The one guy I do of the most is Indy Kalu. Yeah, uh, you know, Indy, I definitely uh, you know keep in contact with. Ephraim Salam, of course, uh-huh. definitely one, one of those guys that I keep in contact with. But, you know, once you retire, everyone goes off and they start sure. doing their, their different things. And, and it's kind of hard. But, uh, I mean, through the Texas alumni, I mean, we, we're all on this uh, text chain. So you can kind of text guys back that way. But I uh, don't really talk to guys as much as I used to. But uh, for me, Drew, that's something that uh, I think needs to change. Yeah. No, it's it's always interesting talking with former players when you ask, hey, which guys that you played with here do you keep in touch with? Because most, if not all the time, it's always very surprising who they they bring up. Because I think fans have an idea of like, oh, I bet Shab and Trey are just best friends, you know, and they might be good right. friends, but they might not keep in touch, you know, and it's always fun to hear who's keeping in touch with who. Now, Nick, we would be idiots or I would be an idiot, not you. I would be an idiot if I didn't ask you about a Denver Bronco who's now a Houston Texan. And that, of course, is running back Philip Lindsay. When he signed with the Texans, you and I went back and forth uh, via text and you were you were pretty excited about it. You thought this was a move that could be uh, pretty beneficial for the Texans after what you've heard, what you've seen in his career and what you've heard and seen uh, of his time, short time with the Texans. What do you think of it all? I think it's great. I think it's a great move for him. Uh, One. Uh, financially, I thought he was undervalued, underpaid here with the Broncos organization. Also, he was underutilized as far as his talent, because most people, when they look at Phil, they say, well, he's a small back. And I tell them he's been small all of his life, but look what he's been able to do in his body type. And I told him when I was coaching with the 49ers and we played, we played him, I say, look, man, you play much bigger than what your size dictates. And I love the power and the energy and enthusiasm you bring to the game. And, and here at Denver, there was a lot of criticism of Phil saying as though he can't catch the ball that well. Well, you can't catch the ball if they don't throw it to you. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just pure mathematics. And the more touches you, you receive, the better you, you get. And, and just watching Phil being an undrafted player, I was an undrafted player. I mean, what undrafted player playing the running back position goes for back-to-back thousand-yard seasons and he goes to the Pro Bowl in his first year? It's kind of unheard of. So I knew that he was one of those types of backs that, I mean, no matter who you put in front of him, no matter who you brought in, he was going to compete. 
And that's that's what I hope, you know, Ingram and, and David Johnson actually realizes, you know, Phil is there to compete. He's going to make you better. And don't see it as, okay, well, he's trying to take my job. That's the way we normally see it. But it's, it's about embracing that competition because you should be willing to compete for your job because it's only going to make you better. And from what I've seen from, uh, from Philip Lindsay, I don't care who you put out there. I don't care where you place him on a depth chart. He's going to outwork every single player. And I'm expecting him to do the same thing for you guys. That's good to hear. You know, in 2018, we saw him uh, when the Texans played. He was a rookie in 2018. And I, I had noticed just watching him that game and, and watching him in the games before and after the violence with which he plays is kind of uncommon. Yes. You kind of touched on it, you know, there, but it's kind of uncommon to his size. You know, he's not afraid to mix it up. It looks like fun. No, 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 he's not. And once again, he's been told he's been small all his life. Yeah. So he, he's had to battle through that. But over the years, that's just kind of built up that hard, tough exterior that we see when he's running between the tackles, when he, he's running outside. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a matchup nightmare for linebackers. Once you get him outside and you dump the ball off to him in the screen, he's, he's capable of making something explosive happen. Yeah. And plus helping things out with that. I think the offensive line in, in Houston is going to be a little bit better this year. I think you got a new line coach in James Campen, who he spent a long time in Green Bay. He's got a Super Bowl ring, you know, did some nice things there. And I think they've they've churned over the roster a little bit there and the depth chart. And there's talent. You know, you got Laramie Tunsil, still one of the best left tackles in the game. And you got a lot of pieces to the right of him that are they're going to figure out and mix and match. But I'm pretty encouraged by by what I see and the potential I see there on the offensive line. And that could only help Philip Lindsay and the rest of those backs. Right. It, it can only help. It's kind of like pass coverage. The pass rush helps out the back end. Yeah, yeah. The offensive line helps out the running back and vice versa. So I'm looking for some uh, great things this year from the Texans and Philip Lindsay as well. Okay, let's do. Uh, let's finish this up with some quick hits. If Chewbacca played football, what position or positions would Chewbacca play? If you he were to play tight end, of course. I mean, okay. think of, th- think about what Owen Daniels was, right? being able to get in and out of his breaks, make those sensational catches inside the end zone from Matt Schaub, that would be perfect for a guy like Chewy because think about his height, right? That's where you want to throw the ball inside the red zone. Yeah, That's right. And and the catch radius, right? Look at the tight ends now. We call them tight ends, but let's call them what they really are. They're just big wide receivers, and that's that's what Chewy would actually be, a huge wide receiver. Now, Nick, when I asked this question about 15 years ago of Mike Leach, former head coach at Texas Tech, now he's down at Mississippi State, Leach had a pretty good – I'll go with tight end as well. Leach said, well, I'd play him both ways, and he'd have him as a defensive end and a left tackle because the strength, the size, all that stuff, the speed. But I'll take tight end as well. That's the beauty of Chewbacca. I think he's versatile and can do those things and yeah. can, could excel at all those spots. Your favorite Star Wars character of all time is Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Okay. Right? Well, think, think about it. Okay. Well, he's a very asthmatic guy, but he still is very powerful. Right. And this the ability to choke a person with your mind or just putting your hands like that, th- that's very powerful. And not saying that I would choke anyone, sure. but just knowing as though that you are that mentally powerful <laughs> and just the power, the power of persuasion. I mean, that's a gift within itself. Like, like if, if I were a wide receiver, we're just talking about Chewy, 
hey, throw the ball to me. Yeah, I know, you know, you have to throw it to, to Dre and, and, you know, Steve Slayton, they told you to hand it off. No, 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 no. Throw it to me because the more stats that I have, the more money I can make. So that would be great. Favorite Star Wars movie of the nine. And if you want, you can throw in Rogue One or, or uh, what are the, other, the the solo one too, if you want. No, man, it's Empire Strikes Back, man. Okay. All I right. mean, that, that was the movie that we found out that Darth Vader was Luke's father, man. Yeah. That that just that blew the story wide open. Here is this, this charismatic young kid, right, who just can't focus on anything because he just he wants to be a pilot. He wants to do all these things. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have this villainous guy who can choke people with his mind, but he's your dad, right? And we know about father-son, dad conflict. And... You know, for most guys, there's always a rite of passage when the, the son takes over for the father, but knowing as though you could do it as a Jedi, that was perfect. That was perfect. Nick, it's always fun talking with you, man. I'm glad we finally got to do this. I wish the Texans were playing the Broncos this year so we could talk a little bit more, but hey, maybe uh, maybe some strange things happen. Both teams are in the playoffs, face each other, and we get to do it then. 